Amen. Well, good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. Are you happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Excellent. Me too. I'm actually a little envious of you because you get to sit down there and I have to stand up here, but we'll make it through. It's okay. Uh, my name is Matt Rumbaugh. I serve as one of the elders here at Harvest, and my wife, Christy, and I lead the small group that meets in Random Hills. Oh, thank you. Oh, I was worried there for a second. Thank you. You guys came through for me. All right. So I want to tell you uh, about a study that came out from a researcher at Harvard University in the early 1990s. I believe it was the year 1991. His name was Stephen Berkless. He was interested in this idea of how do really super-duper successful individuals uh, acquire all this power, all this wealth, all this success, uh, but then self-destruct. And he was looking at some people. Uh, some of you may know these people on the screen here. Mark, who's up on the board, uh, told me this morning he had no idea who these people were. So here's your moment, Mark. You ready? So these are men. Uh, we got Ivan Boski here on the top left. He was a Wall Street financier. It turned out he was also a crook. He, uh, he stole money from people, cheated on his taxes. He went to jail. Same with this guy, Michael Milken. He became famous for na uh, navigating these things called junk bonds. And it turned out he was really good at ripping people off. So he went to jail. Uh, top right here, some of you may know this guy. If you're a baseball fan, this is Pete Rose. He's the all-time leader in base hits. Uh, he did, well, actually, he did go to jail because he cheated on his taxes. But more importantly, he was banned from baseball because it turned out he gambled on a team that he managed. A couple other people, you, you might know these. Jim Baker down here, he read, led a huge ministry, big TV show, a theme park even. Can you imagine? We had a Harvest Bible Chapel theme park. That'd be... Let's not think about that. And then the guy down here on the right is Jimmy Swagger. Same kind of deal, big TV show. So these are all immensely powerful men, all of them self-destructed. And this guy, Stephen Berkless, was curious as to why. So he compared a group of people, uh, these men, some others uh, that achieved a similar level of success, looked at them against some other people that were similarly successful but didn't have or didn't seem to have this self-destructive gene and looked at the difference. And anybody want to guess what the difference between those two groups of people was? No, we're in an awkward position here, so you can't really guess here. Anyway, the difference was a posture of service within a religious community. The thing that makes the difference between somebody achieving this level of power and success and not self-destructing is being part of a thing where the whole is greater than your contribution, where you are bigger than the, or where you are not the point of the enterprise, that something else is. A, acts of service within a religious community. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. If, you're, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you know that we are in a series called Uncommon Community. We are looking at if God is going to transform lives for his glory here in North Virginia, as we're all about this year. We're looking for a hundred stories of this happening. We believe that he wants to do, through, do so through us in this thing called Uncommon Community. So two weeks ago, we looked at this idea that we belong together, that in Christ, is where we find our identity, and our identity as a community, that it doesn't matter how tall we are, how short we are, where we come from, our race, our ethnicity, our age, our financial status, nothing. In Jesus, we have all the community that we need. Last week, we looked at this idea that we dwell in the Word, that the Word of God is the foundation for the relationships and the community that we're trying to build, that what the Word says we do, and that we live, uh, we live that out with each other. So this idea uh, of being together. This week, we want to talk about having a posture of service. If we're going to serve each other in this uncommon community, what does that look like? 
Now, service, of course, is not a new idea. It's not even a unique idea. It's kind of a hot idea in the culture right now, right? All these hurricanes and natural disasters that have come along lately. You go on your Facebook or on your Twitter or what have you, and there's no shortage of places to donate, places to volunteer, places to serve. So, but if our, if our culture is all about service, why do we need to think about it uniquely as the people of Christ? We're going to look at an example of a biblical version of Uncommon Community this morning, how these people serve each other, and what the lessons for us in that might be. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to an Old Testament book. We don't go there a lot, but it is 1 Chronicles. It's in the Old Testament. It's right after uh, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. So 1 Chronicles. We're going to be in chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers will be happy to hand you one. If you're looking this up on your phone, you should should be able to find it relatively easy. So 1 Chronicles 11, and we're going to read verses 15 through 19 together. So read with me. I'll read out loud. You guys follow along. Three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam, when the army of the Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. Okay, so I imagine we have one of two reactions going on right now. A group of you think this is the coolest thing you have heard in a long time. It's like an episode of the A-Team or something like that. A-Team might be a little old reference. What's a current like action show? I don't know, CSI or something like that. You think this is a cool, this is the coolest thing you've ever seen. This is where eagles dare. This is the dirty dozen. These, are you kidding me? They fight through a whole line of Philistines that get this guy watered. That's cool. And then there's another group of you who are like, he did what? Wait, they fought through all this stuff and then they bring it back and he pours it out on the ground. What? What, what, is, what are you talking about here? All right, so we're gonna, both of you are right. It is the coolest thing you've seen in a long time. And also, it's a little bit weird what David does. So let's, uh, let's look at this in the morning and try and figure out what's going on. First thing we want to know is that our man David here, he is the anointed king of Israel. So there's a point in history where Israel's previous king, Saul, had self-destructed, much like the men that we talked about earlier. And God says, okay, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore. My man David is going to be king. But... David does not immediately get to assume the kingdom. He spends about 13 years running away from Saul, being chased around the desert and the wilderness. He actually goes to this area of uh, the Philistines for a little while and hangs out. And then once Saul passes away, there's actually a civil war in Israel for about seven years or so, where the descendants of Saul in the northern part of Israel fight with David and his friends in the southern part of Israel. Eventually that peters out and David is made king of the whole enterprise. This episode happens during that time of division, though. So David's not yet king. But in the chapters 11 and 12 here, we learn about this group of men that surrounded David in order to help him become king. They are persuaded that he is the rightful king of Israel, and they have dedicated their lives to making sure that that happens. So we read about them in chapters, uh, I'm sorry, in the same chapter, verses uh, 10 and 11. These are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. 
Now within this probably a group of about 40 or so altogether that we see travel with David and fight his battles and, and all this. And there's some really cool stories. Chapters 11 and 12 are all about them. Among that group of mighty men, there are three in particular that, that stand out. And they are David's Delta Force or Green Berets or I don't even know quite what the reference is. But they are a super duper big deal. Their names are Eleazar, Joshabayim, and Shammah. And I'm going to quiz you on this later, so make sure that you remember. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to quiz you. Anyway, but they're a super big deal, and that's the three men that we're talking about right here. All right, so what is it that we think the mighty men have to teach us about uncommon community, having a posture of service in uncommon community? The first thing they have to teach us is that they say yes to their king. They say yes to their king. Let's look at what's going on here. David, it's a hot day. David is actually from this town, Bethlehem, and he knows that there's a well by the gate and that a drink of water from that well would be the sweetest thing possible. How many of you, really hot summer day, maybe you've been working in the yard, maybe you've been out for a good hike or a bike ride or something like that, and you get to the end of it and you say to yourself, oh, I could really go for a Coca-Cola. Anybody have that experience? Yeah, so our small group, we just went hiking last week, and on the way down to the mountain, I actually said to one of my friends, when we get down at the bottom of this mountain, I can get myself a Coca-Cola. It's sweet, it's refreshing, it's, it's awesome. Who doesn't love a Coca-Cola on a hot summer's day, right? That's the moment David is in right here. And, excuse me a second. And so the three mighty men are like, oh, David wants a drink of water? Well, I'm going to get him a drink of water. Whenever I read this story, I'm reminded of a TV show, The Office. Any fans of The Office in here? Yeah. <laughs> See, you might remember there was an episode in, uh, in season two. It still makes me laugh when I think about it. It's called The Fire. And so the, during the, the course of the episode, there's a fire in the office. They all have to run out and wait in the parking lot. And most of the episode, they're doing silly things outside while they're waiting for the fire uh, people to, to clean up the fire. But one of the subplots on that is this guy, Dwight, here in the middle, Dwight Schrute. He's assistant to the regional manager. Uh, he wants to sort of use this time to build up some rapport with his manager, Michael Scott, our friend over on the left. But Michael has no time for Dwight because Dwight's kind of annoying. And he is suddenly enamored of the guy over on the right. This is uh, the intern, Ryan. And so he keeps hanging out with Ryan. Dwight's trying to get in with Michael but doesn't find any uh, success and gets, to, gets a little frustrated. So at one point in the episode, Ryan's cell phone rings and he steps away to take it. And our man Michael says, ah, oh, I wish I had my cell phone. And Dwight steps up and he says, really? If I want your cell phone, would that make you happy? And he says, well, yeah, I guess so. And he runs into the building to get the cell phone and comes out. It's funny. Trust me. You should look it up. Anyway, that's a little bit the moment that we're in right now. So the mighty men are like, oh, you want to drink water? Really? From the well? Okay, I'm on it. And they go. Now, stop here for a second. Maybe not the wisest choice for the mighty men to do, right? I don't know exactly how many Philistines are guarding the well, but I'm guessing it's more than three. Yeah? But notice, they don't do a pro-con list. They don't do a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, they don't do an NPV valuation, nothing. They're like, king wants a drink, I'm going to get a drink. And our lesson here is that they do this out of affection, not duty. It would be easy for David, he's the rightful king, to say, I would like a drink, therefore you, you and you, go to the swell, get me a drink. But David doesn't do that. In fact, it's, it's not even necessarily a command or, or set of orders that David issues. It's a passing fancy. He just says it like, oh, I really wish I had a drink. But it doesn't matter to these men. They, are not, they don't have a posture of duty with David. They have a posture of affection. They love this man. They believe that he is God's anointed. They want him desperately to be king of Israel. 
and for God to work out his purposes for the nation of Israel in David. So when David says water, they don't even think about it. They run. It's affection, not duty. To tell you a little bit more about the difference between these things, some of you know I have two daughters, Allie and Lexi. They are awesome. I love them. Um, we can come and I say, hey, guess what? It's time to clean your room. Now, I, I often get one of two answers. Well, truth be told, there's a third answer, but, uh, but we'll get to that in a second. I either get, yes, Daddy, or I get, eh, okay, Daddy. Sometimes I get, oh, I don't really want to, Daddy. Now, out of those, set aside the third one for now, but between, yes, Daddy, and, okay, Daddy, which do you think pleases me more? The first one, right? Because that's out of affection, not duty. Now, Will I take duty? Of course. Of course. Of course. And God will too. Let me not be uh, heard saying that duty is somehow not a biblical virtue. It is. We celebrate it in our culture. It is a biblical virtue. All I'm trying to say is that there is a higher virtue, virtue associated with this idea of saying yes, and that is affection. You know, much like when I ask my daughters to clean their room, truth be told, don't tell them I said this, but I don't really care if their room is clean. It's for their benefit that I want them to clean their room, not my own. You didn't hear that, Lexi. It's for, th- it's for their benefit. I want them to live in a clean place. Their life's going to be more organized. They're going to find their stuff better. There's not going to be, like, creepy crawly things in there. And, you know, with kids' rooms, whew, they get dirty. Not, not good. I want them to clean their room for their benefit, not mine. It's the same thing. When we say yes to God out of affection, he's pleased. And that's to our benefit, not his. Are we somehow going to make God better with our yes? No. Are we going to make God more holy, more loving, more patient, more gracious? No. God is God no matter our posture. We are the ones who benefit from an affection response, not just duty. Uh, some of you probably know the, uh, the name John Wooden. He was basketball coach at UCLA, uh, mostly in the 60s. So he served there for a long time. His team's won 10 national championships, still a record, including at one point eight in a row. And he became famous uh, as he started to explain how he had been such a successful coach. He became famous for something called the Pyramid of Success. Have some of you seen this before? Okay. So I won't explain the whole details. It's a little bit, well, it's a little bit nerdy is what it is. But um, right here in the middle, this is kind of the, the main one. The most important line is this one in the middle because it's the one that holds it together. At least this is the way that he explains it. So over here on the right, he has something called team spirit. And that is, uh, he, he described it as this willingness to sacrifice individual good for the greater whole. And he, uh, in a book he wrote that for years and years and years, he struggled with this definition. He knew it wasn't quite right. He wanted team spirit, this idea of sacrificing for each other, to be in the pyramid, but, but it, it wasn't quite right. It never settled with him. And then he read an account, and he doesn't even remember the details of it, but when someone was described as eager to sacrifice for the greater good, he's like, that's it. And he changed the pyramid to reflect it. So it's that difference between willingness and eagerness. Am I willing to sacrifice my desire for what God has asked me to do, or am I eager to do it? I know it's a subtle difference, but it's a really important difference. Am I serving the Lord out of affection for him because I love who he is and what he's done in my life, or am I serving him out of a grudging duty? That difference is really important. Will he take duty? Yes, but he craves affection. And we know that he's worthy of it, right? What more could he, ask, could he do for us? What more could he ask of us but to love him for who he is and what he has done for us? Affection, not duty. 
And so I just want to pause here for a second because I think it's worth us asking, where am I holding back from my king? Of course, we know as believers in Jesus that David's kingdom is just a foreshadowing of the kingdom that Jesus will have later, where Jesus will not just have an earthly kingdom. Jesus will not just be the king of Israel. He will be the king of everything. In fact, he is even now. Tim Keller likes to say that Jesus is the new and better David, leading God's people into God's purposes. And so if David, the earthly king, is worthy of this kind of affection, how much more so is Jesus? So where am I holding back affection from my king? Where does he want me to say yes and I'm giving him a no? Or where is he asking me to say yes and I'm being wishy-washy? I'm holding back. I'm saying, I don't know, Lord. Can I, can I let that breathe for a couple days? Can I maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, that's not really fitting with my schedule. Come back to me next week, God, and I'll say yes to that thing. This week I can't. Where am I holding back affection from God? It's a worthy question for us to ask this morning. The mighty men say yes to their king, and they do do so from affection, not duty. Now, the second thing I want us to see this morning is that deserves got nothing to do with it. I'm a big believer that there's a Clint Eastwood quote for every occasion. And the one that I picked out for this is deserves got nothing to do with it. Let me explain what I mean. So look at verses, where are we here? Verses 18 and 19. So the, the, the uh, mighty men have fought through the Philistines, gotten the drink, brought it back. And then it says, the mighty men brought it, where am I here? But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? Okay, so those of you who think this is a really w- weird story, this is your moment. What is David doing? They fight through all these men. They risk their lives. There's just three of them. There's who knows how many of these Philistines. They fight their way there. They fight their way back. They give this to David, and he pours it on the ground. How ungrateful. Aha. Not ungrateful. It's actually the appropriate response. Let me explain. You see, David here realizes that he's made a foolish request, that in his passing fancy and his, his, you know, just not thinking about what he says, these men have risked their life for him for the sake of a drink of water. And he realized that this is a level of devotion, an act of service so holy that the only one who deserves it is the Lord alone. David sees that he has issued a request that he's not worthy to make, that the one who deserves this level of sacrifice is the Lord alone. And what's more, David doesn't just say so, David, David repents of it. When he pours out the water here, he's actually mirroring uh, something that happens in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. So in the Old Testament, as you probably know, uh, when the uh, Israelites would go to the temple or the tabernacle, they would sacrifice a goat, a lamb, uh, a bull, or some animal, depending on the nature of the sacrifice they wanted. Uh, And then as they would sacrifice that animal, the, the table was set that the blood from that animal would run off to the side and be collected. And when they were finished dealing with the animal and they were ready to finish the sacrifice, the last act is that they would collect that blood and then pour it over the animal into the fire and the the flames would rise up. And this is to signify repentance. The act of sacrifice itself was asking for God's forgiveness, acknowledging our sin before him, but that final act of pouring out the blood is an act of repentance. So David's attitude here, David's gesture is not one of ingratitude, it's one of humility and repentance. And just like Clint Eastwood would say, David realizes deserves got nothing to do with it. He does not deserve an act of, of service in this manner. God does. 
In fact, our view of God becomes critically important in a moment like this. If we see and understand and experience just how great God really is, his character, his power, his glory, his righteousness, and we understand how desperately sinful we are in our pride and wickedness, a drink of water is nothing. We should pour out our lives for him in a similar act of circumstance. So your view of God is super duper important here. If you understand who God is, you'll see that this is the appropriate gesture for David to make. It's not ungratitude, it's humility and repentance. Deserves got nothing to do with it. In fact, David does not deserve this tribute. I don't deserve this tribute. Jesus does. He's worthy of it. So this attitude right here should, should support all the acts of service that we perform, both here and outside our church. So when I come to church on Sunday and I'm unloading the truck, I'm not really unloading, I'm not serving you. I mean, I kind of am, but I'm not serving, I'm serving the Lord Jesus. In fact, Colossians 3.23, let me read it for us. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the one who is worthy of our service. Jesus is the one who deserves it. So when I unload the truck, I'm not serving our church. I kind of am. I'm serving the Lord Jesus. When I hold babies back in Harvest Kids, I'm not really serving the babies. I kind of am. I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. When I pray with somebody in my small group, I'm not really serving them. I kind of am, but I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. When we uh, go to our elder meeting and we have some really tough decisions to make, we're not really serving our church family. We really are. We sort of are, but we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. When I go to a neighbor who's having a really tough situation, I'm not really serving them. I kind of am, but I'm really serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this sunk in enough? My neighbor does not deserve for me to serve them. I don't deserve to have my neighbor serve me. Deserves got nothing to do with it. The one who deserves is the Lord Jesus. Make sense? Okay. So, again, we want to stop here and ask a question. Where is deserve in my vocabulary that it doesn't belong? Where do I expect service from maybe my church family, people at work, people in my community that I don't really deserve? And, moreover, where am I serving with sort of this soft notion that I deserve some credit, some glory, a pat on the back, I don't know, whatever it is? Where does deserve need to get out of my vocabulary? If we really have a posture of service, then deserve is going to be a much frequently used word. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, third thing that I want to see from the mighty men this morning is actually not in the text. And this is one of those examples where what's not in the text speaks as loudly to us as what's in the text. Notice, I want you to notice at the end here, uh, the mighty men are not offended by David's action. In fact, the rest of the chapter here and on in chapter 12, they go on to perform amazing feats of courage and service to David. In fact, one of these men, I think it's Joshua Baum, is uh, recognized as killing 800 Philistines in a single battle for the sake of David. They are not offended. I would be. I would be. In fact, I say this to my shame. Apparently at work, I have turned into the rant guy. Um, so a couple of months ago, some memo came out. I don't even remember what it was about. And so one of my colleagues comes over to my cube and says, hey, did you read that email? And I said, yeah, I read it. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. And my colleague says to me, ooh, are we going to get a good Matt rant out of this? Oh, and my heart just sunk. Well, on the one hand, it's nice to think that I made them laugh and all that. But I mean, but I became the rant guy. I don't want to be the rant guy. 
oh, but I fear that I am. I fear that if I were one of the three mighty men here, I would be like, wait, I did what? It's, it's God knows how hot over here. We're in this God-forsaken place called Bethlehem. I fought through that whole group of Philistines. I come back over here, and you're pouring that on the ground? David, what are you doing? That would be me. Thankfully, it's not the mighty men. You see, they have learned an important lesson about uncommon community, having a posture of service, and that is we need to be and remain unoffendable. I actually caught this phrase from a woman named Christine Kane. Does that ring a bell with any of you? She is, uh, I didn't know much about her, but I heard her on this podcast a few weeks ago, and, uh, and I was really blessed by it. She is the leader of a movement called Propel, which is a leadership development program for women. And she also serves as the leader of a ministry called A21, which focuses on human trafficking and slavery in the, around the world. And she was asked in the course of this interview, what is the most important leadership lesson you have learned? And she said, remain unoffendable. And actually, I, I, I had to like rewind it to make sure that I heard her right. She said, offense will take you out faster than immorality ever will. And as she explained uh, her position, I came to think that she's right. Her point was, okay, so say you take offense at something, somebody does something that bothers you, you more than likely are not going to call that person out on it um, because you're too polite to do that. But that's going to sit in your heart. That's going to turn into bitterness. And that bitterness is going to have to get out at some point. So you're going to go over to your friend and start gossiping and chattering about that. Next thing you know, your relationships are fractured, and it's because way back here at the beginning, you took offense at something you didn't really need to. Boy, I know this is true in my own life. How quick I am to get really hacked off when something happens. You know, even something innocuous. You know, somebody's late to small group or um, you know, doesn't give me a compliment on my shirt that I feel like I like. I don't know. I get offended at the silliest things. Maybe you do too. I don't know if you identify with this or not. But that offense turns into bitterness, and next thing you know, my relationships are fractured. And I think uh, Ms. Kane is right. Offense will take you out quicker than immorality ever will. So as we're looking to build this uncommon community, I hope that's something that we will keep in mind. With a group this size, there's no way we're all going to get along peachy keen all the time. Somebody is bound to hack you off about something along the way. You know, they don't wear the right clothes. They uh, don't like the right food. They're not available to go to the movies with you. They, I don't know, anything. They, you know, they come 20 minutes late to church every Sunday. They take your favorite seat. Uh, you're serving in four ministries. They only serve in one, and that's welcome team, and that doesn't really count anyway. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Love you, welcome team. Love you. Um, I'm here working hard. They barely do anything. I am offended. And boy, let me tell you, social media does not help us in this. You guys know what I'm saying? So we just came out of this, you know, crazy election. I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but I, I fire up my Facebook, my Twitter, or whatever, and I have to go through, I have to just scroll page after page after page before I can find somebody who's just going to give me a baseball score, you know. You know, whether it's the NFL players kneeling, not kneeling, whether it's, you know, this version of the Bible, that version, of, there's a million things out there to be offended about. But if we're going to have an uncommon community, the posture we're looking for is to remain undefended. We want to, in our house, we talk about this as having a long fuse. Now, I've told you that I'm a relatively easily offended man, but God in his mercy has given me the best possible teaching object on this. I have teenage daughters. I'm telling you, if you want to remain unoffendable, do not have teenage daughters. <laughs> so we talk about this idea in our house. My wife, Christy, knows what I'm talking about. We talk about having a long fuse. 
You guys remember those old cartoons, maybe Roadrunner and, and Coyote? Remember where the coyote would be trying to, to trap the Roadrunner, and he would set the bomb from Acme Company, and he, but he'd want to run a long way from it, so it would have this long fuse, and he would light the fuse, and it would all the way over here, and he was hoping to get the timing just right so it would blow up the Roadrunner, and of course, he never got it right. So that's an idea that I get with this. I want my fuse to be as long as the coyotes, right? And hopefully my anger is not as destructive as the coyotes either. But, um, but yeah, long fuse. Now, thankfully, the Bible has some coaching for us in that one. Let's look at Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verse 15. The writer here says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. So remember the pathway that we talked about a little bit earlier. Offense leads to bitterness. It leads to destruction. We see it right here in Hebrews 12. So we want to be careful that those little things don't get roots in our heart and build into bitterness and destroy our relationships. Proverbs also has some excellent wisdom. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now, if you are like me, this is a very challenging verse because I like getting upset. I like being offended sometimes. But the Bible tells me it's to my glory to overlook an offense. And if we're going to have a posture of service, if we're going to build this uncommon community that we believe God is calling us to, we want to have long fuses. We want to be quick to overlook and forgive offenses. Now, a word here. If somebody legitimately sins against you, yes, address that. Matthew 18 gives us a, a process for that. Somebody lies to you, steals from you, abuses you, all of those things. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, I'm not saying excuse legitimate sin. If somebody legitimately sins against you, yeah, we want to seek restoration, forgiveness, humility, all of those things. But the day-to-day -day little picky things that we're so quick to get upset about, we want to, be, we want to remember that it's to our glory to overlook offenses. If the mighty men could do it, we can do it too. Because we serve an even better king, right? Yeah. All right, so what have we learned this morning? We have learned from the mighty men that there are three postures of service within an uncommon community that might help us. The one is that we say yes to our king, that we do it from affection, not duty. The second is that deserves got nothing to do with it, and I need to be in the process of moving that out of my vocabulary. May I never accept or try and give service other than to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third is that I want to become and remain unoffendable. That it's to my glory to overlook an offense. And I believe that if we focus on these elements and really live them out day to day, that God will use them for his glory to transform lives here in Northern Virginia. Uncommon community, posture serves. We say yes to our king, affection not duty, deserves got nothing to do with it, and we want to remain unoffendable. So let's pray together. Lord, I'm mindful of the words of the prophet Micah who said, who is a God like you? And Lord, how often we hold affection back from you. How often we try and give you service out of duty rather than affection. How often we try and perform for you rather than serve you out of love and gratitude. Lord, how often we take the attitude that we deserve something. We deserve to sleep in on Sundays rather than come to church and worship with your people. 
we deserve a, a break on the weekends. We, we don't need to work uh, at church. That we, we need to sleep in because we work so hard during the week. That whatever, to, how, how often we think that we deserve something when you are the one who deserves all praise, all glory. And God, how often we are quick to take offense at the silliest things. Putting ourselves in place of you where you have forgiven us for so much, but we hold that back from our brothers and sisters. Lord, may we be a people that considered our glory to overlook offense. And so, Lord, as we come into this season where we're trying to really emphasize uncommon community, um, remembering that we belong together, being people of the word, Lord, I pray that we would take a posture of service, that we are quick and eager to say yes to you, that the word deserve leaves our vocabulary, and, Lord, that we become and remain unoffendable, that we show grace in the way that we have been shown grace from you. Lord, would you do this in us? And as you do and when you do, we will give you the glory for you are the one who deserves anything and everything. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.